1952, the pastor of New York City's Marble Collegiate Church published one of the best-selling books of the 20th century. You may even know what I'm talking about. It is The Power of Positive Thinking, written by Norman Vincent Peale, a book that was so influential, is influential to even political leaders, even presidents in the 20th century. Now, the book uses examples of positive thinking with some Bible stories and verses sprinkled throughout to make the case that having an optimistic attitude will get you far in life. The ten rules outlined in the book give techniques like how to visualize your success, how to encourage yourself with affirmations, and how to see God primarily as the source of all healing energy, whether spiritual, emotional, or physical. Practicing these things, the book goes on to say, should free you to believe and, and more importantly, to live successfully. Now, to me, what's absolutely wild about this is that Peel was the pastor of a Reformed church. This is a Christian tradition, as many of you know, that uh, has one of its central tenets, the doctrine of depravity, that the human mind and will and heart are so warped and distorted by sin that it's impossible for anybody to unlock some hidden spiritual potential or spiritual um, uh, enlightenment through just an optimistic attitude. Yet Peel's book still sits in the great pantheon of, I think, the ultimate American genre, which is the self-help book. And although there are morsels of good advice in there, things that we would say are good, things like be grateful, be generous to others, say kind things, all words of of truth, the big problem with the book overall is that it's centered, even from a Christian perspective, its center is on the self. Personal ambition and success are esteemed more than faithfulness and humility, more than compassion and holiness. And while our nation runs on ambition and success, these are not the things that God calls his people to. Such thinking relegates God to a background actor in a play that is all about us and our own enrichment. Yet ironically, The pursuit of self-interest, which is what this book is driving at, is the very thing that led our primordial parents, Adam and Eve, not into everlasting glory, as they hoped, but into an early grave. And so this so-called positive thinking for the purpose of self-aggrandizement doesn't actually have a positive outcome in the human life at all. So what can we hope for instead? Now, unbeknownst to many of our modern self-help gurus, the scriptures do not leave us empty-handed. It doesn't leave us without anything to hope for. Indeed, God cares more for our well-being, I would say spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, in every way, socially. God cares more for our well-being than we could ever possibly imagine. And his Apostle Paul this morning gives us wisdom for what kind of thinking that we should have in lieu of selfish thinking. Or as it's 
become known, positive thinking. The mind of Christ is what should be in us, as we read in chapter 2. And so the focus of Paul's message this morning is not to live according to a life of, uh, or not to live life according to the power of positive thinking, but what were to happen if we live life according to the power of virtuous thinking instead. Now, before we jump into these two verses we're looking at this morning, let's just recall where we've been and what we've been hearing from the Apostle Paul. See, in the last several passages, he has encouraged us to imitate him, as he will this morning. He has encouraged us to imitate him as he himself seeks to imitate the humble Jesus, to reproduce what he sees Christ has already done. In other words, it's not to give into our baser instincts, our chase after worldly, carnal pleasures and appetites, but it is to walk in the way of the cross. You know, Paul is clear in other letters. This thinking of the cross is foolishness to the self-help gurus and the philosophers and the scholars of this world. It's foolishness to them. It's foolishness to the Gentile world. And it's a stumbling block to the religious um, uh, Jewish world. And yet, the Christian is called to walk in the way of the cross. To be a people who are humble. To be a people of great rejoicing. To be a people of graciousness and action and thought and speech. And to be thankful, thankful before God always. Because, as we concluded last time, God has already drawn near to us in Jesus. And so as Paul has been warning us away from worldly thinking, the, the worldly thinking that got in between two great saints of the faith, two sisters in Christ, Euodia and Syntyche, to get rid of that kind of thinking. Instead, he is inviting us again into godly thinking and living and action. Here in verse 8, I think we're, we're really seeing Paul start to come down this letter. He's, he's, he's cueing us that he's, he's, he's winding up. He's making a summary of everything that's come before. And he's doing that by sharing a list of virtues that we should now be living into. The early church theologian Tertullian famously asked, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Have you ever heard that before? What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And his point is that in a world uh, that the church was first coming up in, the Greco-Roman world that was famous for its development of philosophy and all these different worldly ways of thinking, he's, he, he's making the point that philosophies like Stoicism or Aristotelianism, Epicureanism, uh, Platonism, all things that are um, competing schools of thought in the Philippian uh, colony, those things tended to hold the final word on matters of the cosmos, matters of the human condition. So when, when people were thinking about what's moral, what's good, what's right, they tended to think in these well-worn Greco-Roman philosophical paths, as, as commentator Lynn Coick notes. And all these philosophical schools and traditions had lists of virtues, things to strive for, ideals for the human being to live into. So interestingly here, Paul takes that idea 
of virtues, lists of virtues, and seems to consciously adapt those things for a higher purpose. Now, Coic is careful to stop and ask good questions about this. Is Paul capitulating to his own day and age by by uh, building, it seems like, a, a moral system out of kind of pagan ideas? Is he saying that this Gentile culture is on the right track? It just needs kind of Christian assistance and clarity? Or is he suggesting that, well, the Christian life is already embedded deep in the hearts of, of um, even non-believers and it, and it just needs um, to be revealed and addressed so that the public can understand it? What is Paul doing by listing these virtues, some of which we find in Greek lists, not non-Christian lists of virtues. And I think she goes on to suggest, and rightly so, that in Paul's mind, we have to see and understand everything through the lens of Christ. So when Paul gives us these things, that, uh, this, this list of things that we should be, some of which, again, are we find copied over in, from pagan lists. Both before and after, he gives us these virtues. We cannot forget that he reminds us that the Lord is near. We cannot forget that he tells us that he is the God of peace. So on either side of what we should be doing, Paul is reminding us that we are bracketed in already by what God and Jesus has done for us. God first drew near in Christ. And lastly, God will bring His own peace through Christ. And so everything we do, everything we are called to do, is because of that reality already. And so when we look through that lens, we see that the focus is not on us and what we should do, but what God and or who is God and what He's already done for us. And it's in that framework that Christians can do all of their thinking and all of their living. Coex says the Philippians are to think about themselves in a new way, to be citizens of a different sort, because their kingdom is of a different nature. And so, Paul used the language available to him, but places it within a different paradigm of reality. This new reality witnesses to the cross, to the resurrection, and to the return of the Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's through that grid, that mindset, that we can think about how we ought to live and how we ought to be. So although some of Paul's terms are recognizable, in the pagan world. Truth. Justice. These are big concepts. Even in the Philippian world. The point is so much greater. He could have used other philosophical terms. He could have used charity or prudence. Again, from the, the great uh, list of, of, of Greek virtues, of Hellenistic virtues, to describe what he's after, spiritually speaking. But let's look at the six virtues he does give us and see how we're supposed to not only understand them, but how we're supposed to live them out. So first, he tells us to think on whatever is true. Now, St. Augustine once said that all truth is God's truth. So everything that is true belongs to God, who is true. But how do we know what truth actually is? 
We live in a world today where truth can compete and conflict. The, the notion of following your truth can mean that somebody follows their truth in a fundamentally opposite direction, and yet somehow these two ideas that are opposed are supposed to be true. That's the world in which we live. Not unlike the world in which the, the sort of polytheistic Romans in Philippians lived in. So how do we actually know what truth is? Truth begins with us. It begins with Jesus Christ. That is our metric for truth. Who He is. He is the embodiment of truth in human form. His truth, He is the truth. His Gospel is the truth. His Word is truth. Written and enfleshed. It is true. And so when Pilate's voice rings in our ears, what is truth? When we have those moments of modern skepticism and doubt, when we don't know what to believe, for the Christian, we need to remember that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So a mind that thinks on whatever is true first sees that Jesus, the Word made flesh, is the truth whose light shines and illumines everything else that is true. His truth illumines every avenue of life. Pastor Kent Hughes says from faith to science to relationships to public life to business to politics, everything, if we look at the truth of Christ, everything else falls into place. You want to know what's true? Start with Jesus. Who He is, what He's done, what He says, and then everything else will begin to sort itself out. Whatever's true, dwell on this. But then he says next, whatever is honorable. Now Aristotle was known for using this word in his philosophizing several hundred years before Jesus. Whatever's honorable, whatever's noble. But it's more likely that when Paul is talking about nobility, he's not tapping into the Greek understanding of it. He's probably actually using the idea that we find in the mind of Solomon as he writes a book like Proverbs. Proverbs 8.6 mentions uh, the word honorable, noble things, just alongside what is true and righteous. The virtues that come before and after this one. And so it's very likely that when Paul is thinking about um, what is honorable, he's not thinking about that in sort of the secular sense. He's thinking about it in the, uh, um, in the terms of how the, the Scriptures use that, which is, can be different than how the world looks at honorable. So practically applied, when this term honorable, or sometimes maybe in some of our translations it's rendered as noble, when it's used by Paul, it's used heavily in his pastoral epistles where he's writing to young pastors that are ministering to the Ephesians and uh, the, the, these up-and-coming congregations that have a lot to, to work out. And he uses honorable, he uses noble to refer to elder Christians and Christians in positions of leadership. So the word is supposed to signify to us kind of a moral excellence or a thing that is worthy of honor. So in the context of this letter, it's meant to point us to a serious spiritual 
life. Whatever or whoever is honorable, whoever takes their life with Christ seriously, whatever helps us to have a serious life with Christ, not a life that's joyless, not a life that doesn't laugh, that's not what we mean by serious, but who takes the gravity of being close to the Son of God. Whoever lives in that way, or whatever gets you thinking in that way, Paul says, think on this. Whatever's true, whatever's honorable. Next, he says, whatever is just. Now, in the New Testament, the word for just or justice is the same word for right or righteous. I think that should help us in our English understanding when we talk about righteousness. It's the same concept as justice. What is right, what is just, are the same word and the same idea. So just like with truth, God's character is the basis for whatever is just and whatever is right. When you want to know what's right, what's just, we don't look at how the world measures that metric. We look at how God says is what is right and what is just. That's going to run fundamentally opposed to the world sometimes. In some sense, the world's going to think what's, what God says is just is too harsh. And in other places, what God says is just, the world is going to say that's too gracious. And so when God does something, or when God tells us what is just and right, that's going to put us at odds with a lot of people. And while Paul, in some contexts, uses this word to say that we are right or justified by Christ, he talks about a relationship with God, he also reminds us uh, throughout the Scriptures, in Romans and Galatians specifically, of what the prophet Habakkuk said to his people centuries prior. The just slash righteous will live by faith. And so I think Paul cast a wide net when he's defining just. This virtue first is rooted in God's character, as all of these virtues are. But then it leads us as human beings to act in a, to, to have right action and just behavior. So, that means that whatever, when we think about whatever is just, it's not that we just, you know, kind of pay mental lip service to it, but instead, that we are shaped by God's character in such a way that we too live for the sake of everyone's well-being. Not just ours or people we like. Meaning that we can forsake whoever is uneasy or inconvenient. Or that we can overlook people that we like when they do something wrong or bad because we like them. That is what righteousness and that's what just means. Whatever is just Think on these things. Number four, he says whatever is pure. Now, the term purity probably, and Paul's meaning here, carries both kind of a moral and ritual connotation to it. In other words, morally pure, you're not out doing bad things, but also that you're being reverential and and dignified in, in the place of worship. And so, Christians are to value Sacred spaces. They're not to be uh, irreverent or idolaters or blasphemers. But not only are they to uh, be reverential in that sense, but they're also to be pure in their relationships. Not polluting life-giving waters, 
of, that come from God with the muddiness of, of sexual immorality or unclean behavior. Now, the way that we can think about this is helpful is the way that we value a place of worship, the way that we value the time in which we come together and pray and, and listen to the Word read and proclaimed, the time that we sing and give, the, the reverence that we give to that in our life is the same value that we should place on the home and the workplace. Christians are not to live a dichotomous life where, um, <laughs> where we come here, put on our best face to fool everyone, and then go home and live mean as the devil. There should be no distinction between what is what we formerly thought of sacred and what we think is common and profane. Everywhere we are, and in every relationship, and with everyone, we are to live a life of purity. Now, that does not mean we'll always get everything right. That does not mean that we go through life faking our niceness or kindness or we don't have everything together. Maybe in some sense this should help us understand better how we should be in church. Not as people that are sanctimonious and button up our coat and never have any problems, but that people are honest that they're sinners and come to be cleansed by God's healing grace and forgiveness. And living that way, not just here where you get a little spiritual you know, steroid shot to go for your week, but letting that affect your weekly living, your daily living. So Christians who are... Now remember, God's dwelling place was the temple. This was where everything was... Or the tabernacle. supposed to be pure. No ritually impure things. We were supposed to watch, wash themselves, come in reverentially. But we already know from the New Testament that God's new dwelling place is not a temple made with hands, but it's the Christian heart and life. God comes to dwell in His new temple, the Christian heart. And so, Christians are called to strive for purity in everything they do, in their thought and their speech, just as we are called to strive for being just in action and in deed. Think on whatever is pure. Paul goes on with his fifth point. Whatever is lovely. Now this one is interesting because this term does not occur anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, the thing that we have closest to it, we get in Esther 5. A book that's not even quoted in the New Testament. So in in Esther 5, uh, verse 1 I believe it is, it uses this term lovely, same, uh, same root word, to describe Esther's physical beauty and appearance. Now, this is a virtue that might surprise us that Paul would mention this because so much of what we think the Christian life is has to do with the, the, the interior. Uh, um, uh, we think of what's in the mind and the heart and the will. And that's true. Paul does put an emphasis on that. But it seems that Paul is also strongly suggesting that things that are not just morally good, but even, this is shocking, aesthetically pleasing are things worth dwelling on. Now, the Christian philosophers that have come before us, when they summarize God's eternal characteristics, they do it in three ways, these transcendentals, that God is true, God is good, and God is beautiful. 
Jonathan Edwards, the uh, American theologian, placed a great emphasis on teaching on beauty. That's not something typically done as much in Protestants or, or low church settings like his congregational church, but he saw the intrinsic worth, rightly so, of thinking on what is beautiful. The Psalms and their construction are beautiful as songs, as poems. The, the, the love poetry of Solomon even is, uh, is an attractive thing. Attractive things honor God in their beauty and are to be appreciated because God is the source of all beauty. Now Christians not only should be people who meditate on the eternal reality of truth and goodness, but even beauty as well. And finally, Paul tells us, whatever is commendable. This one is pretty simple. Commendable meaning whatever is spoken highly of, or reputable in conduct or character, whatever or whoever is worthwhile talking about, likely because they have these other five virtues, or likely because they other, it reflects these other five virtues. Whatever is commendable, think on these things. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, think on these things. And tying all these virtues together, Paul says anything that is morally excellent, anything, Anything that's praiseworthy, think, dwell on these things. And this is the kind of thinking that turns into doing. It's not merely a pondering over or a mulling over, but a practicing and a working out. Now notice this. This is crucial to an understanding of any time we're told to do something or commanded to do something. Notice that all of these virtues begin and end in God Himself. His character. God is true. God is honorable. God is just. God is pure. God is lovely. God is commendable. So to dwell on these virtues is not to just dwell on six nice ideas. It's to dwell on the things of God Himself. To dwell on Him and His character. So not only is it the power of virtuous thinking, but we see what's really even better is that this is the power of godly thinking. Now to think about the character of God, to dwell on Him and how He has made Himself known, is to think and dwell on the person of Jesus. That's where we can see who God is in His fullest. Living with His humble mind, as Paul's already called us to, with His gentle heart ever before us, having Him as our model, as our example, as our teacher, as our prize and goal, living with Christ ever before us shapes us into the kind of people that begin to reflect His character back into the world. As we think on Jesus and strive to be like Him, it turns out we become more true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. Dwelling on whatever is true will keep us from being shackled by the lies of this world. The lies about power and wealth and control and manipulation. Thinking on whatever is honorable will keep us 
from being swayed by silly fads and caprices and and shallow rebellions. Dwelling on whatever is just will keep us from playing favorites with some, excusing bad behavior because we like them, and will help us to advocate for people that have been abused. Thinking on whatever is pure will keep us from degrading ourselves or our loved ones for a fleeting and momentary pleasure. Thinking on whatever is lovely will keep us from obsessing over the darkness, the twistedness of this world and its ugliness, and even from dwelling on that in one another. And dwelling on whatever is commendable will keep us seeking the good in this world. The good in others and the good and commendable things that are in this world that God has made already. All in all, the power of virtuous thinking keeps us focused on God's glory and therefore, consequently, on the good of others around us. It develops something so much more wonderful in us than positive thinking does, which just keeps us focused on us and ourselves and and, and is so short-sighted we only think about this one soul instead of the beauty of the infinite God and all the other wonderful souls that He's created. It shapes us to live out God's royal law of love, to think and dwell on virtuous things. So Paul concludes, Do all of this, Christians, what you've learned, received, heard, and seen in and from Me, not because it's Me, not because it's Paul, but because I'm an example of what dwelling on the things of God can do to a human person. Paul was an enemy of a church. Of the enemy of the church, rather. He was a self-righteous Pharisee. He was a murderer. And yet, now he sits imprisoned for people that could never help him with any power or money or anything. He sits in prison for their sakes. And so you can see the power of thinking of thinking on God, the power of virtuous thinking in Paul's own life. So he says, live a life of trust in Christ. Live a life of grace for one another. Live a life of hope and the resurrection and return for your own well-being. And no matter what your circumstances are, he concludes this way, God's peace, His personal Trinitarian peace that He has known for all eternity before time and space and matter existed. God's peace will be with and in and for you. So here's where the rubber meets the road, though. (laughs) Pastor Hughes says it this way, the truth is, we have not learned these things. We've not really thought about them until we have lived them out. Noble thoughts are of little value unless they are translated into deeds. So the whatevers become reality on the basis of the choices we make. The choices we make at our work desk or the gas station or driving the carpool lane or a thousand other anonymous occasions when we make the choices that shape our lives. So, I think for us to conclude, this gives us an exciting yet overwhelming opportunity 
to dwell on these virtues in such a way that we live them out in a million small ways with our spouses, with our kids, with our grandkids, with our friends, with our extended family, with our co-workers, with everyone. In every little avenue of light, whether it's paying our bills or fixing up the house or running errands or going to work or socializing, whatever it may be, all of these things are all of these things present us opportunities to dwell on virtuous things and to reflect the mind of Jesus in us, even though we do it imperfectly, for the glory of God and for the good of everyone around us. It's a task, let's be honest, that is entirely too high for any of us to live into. It's a high calling and responsibility, but it has been notarized with the power of God's Holy Spirit. And the God of peace, Paul says, will grant it to us to do it. He'll make it happen. Don't forget, Christian, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So trust in Christ alone and experience the mind of Christ, which is the power of virtuous thinking. Let's pray. Lord, give us minds that think on and so act on these things. We can only do it with Christ's help. It's in His name we now pray. Amen.